You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 41. Well, we've had some fun over the past few weeks of the podcast. Most recently was a two-part conversation with Pat Farmer, the very first foray into a live recording with an audience for the podcast. We've also had, over the last little while, an amazing conversation with Andrew Mewing, an Australian swimmer who did everything in the sport except go to the Olympics. What a wonderful story he told, and it was reflected in the podcast numbers too after only a few weeks on iTunes, is the second most listened to episode ever for the podcast. Michelle McQuaid joined us for a chat in episode 35, and what a guest she was. She really did produce a masterclass in positive leadership. She has a gift for articulating important and complex ideas and distilling them into a handful of memorable bite-sized pieces. And a couple of episodes ago, we had a visit from the remarkable Katie Kelly. She was only a few weeks away from making her debut at the Paralympics. Well, the good news is that last weekend, Katie competed in the very first triathlon, contested at the Paralympics, and came away with a gold medal. As she predicted here on the show, she was a few places back after the swim, but surged to the lead during the bike leg and held on during the run. Katie's story is quite simply one of the most heartwarming I've ever come across. And for her to convert all that effort and training over the past 18 months into a grand performance on the big day, well, it was almost destiny. I couldn't really imagine it happening any other way. I had a quick email exchange with Katie after her race and she's over the moon, as you might expect. And she's promised to join us here on the podcast again to tell us all about it. And she did mention one other cool little thing. Quite unprompted, I promise, Katie told me that before her gold medal race in Rio, she was listening to the Pat Farmer episode of the Team Guru podcast in the Athletes' Lounge. That's pretty cool. Definitely another first for the show. And that brings me to today's guest. Grant Dale spent more than 30 years in the Royal Australian Navy. He first set sail as a 15-year-old with romantic notions of a life at sea. A couple of years ago, he retired, having played a crucial role in the design and delivery of a Navy leadership program that had the grand aim of turning around the culture of the entire organization. During our chat, Grant tells us what it's really like to be at sea, spending months on the ocean at a time, away from family and friends. He tells us how he worked his way up through the organization to the lofty rank of commander, taking charge of his own ship. And most importantly for us here on the podcast, he tells us all about his journey as a leader, falling in love with the discipline of personal effectiveness and leadership, and how he and his colleagues designed a program to turn around the organizationally entrenched behaviors that saw the Navy and other parts of defense earn so much criticism over recent years. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Grant Dale.
Dale. Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to have you, Grant. We've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. We've had it in train. So, Grant, obviously, the crux of your story is around your time in the Navy and the development of you as someone who's got an enormous interest in leadership. And then, of course, the cherry on top of all of that is the wonderful work you did around, I guess, essentially the cultural refresh that took place in the Navy a few years ago now. Yeah, that's right. So tell us, Grant, I I remember when we had a conversation a while ago, I was so interested in your story as a Navy man. And you said, oh, we we don't need to talk about it on the podcast. No one will find that interesting. But mate, clearly it's fascinating to those of us who are outside the Navy. It's not interesting to you because a lot of people you know are in the Navy. But to those of us outside, the idea that you would go in to the Defence Force as a 15-year-old and spend well over 30 years in that organisation and and start at the very lowest ranks and come out at up to the very highest ranks as an officer is, is really interesting. When you look back at that career, what are the highlights for you? What do you really remember across the breadth of that 36 years? Well, David, as you said, I, I joined as a, as a 15-year-old. And looking back today, I, I can't imagine actually joining as a 15-year-old today. In fact, I remember when my own son turned 15 and I looked at him and thought, gee, when I was your age, I was, I was joining the Navy and it quite horrified me. It was a different age uh, back then. Leaving home at 15 was not uncommon at all, regardless of, of what sort of uh, work you went into. So it just seemed fairly natural for me to, to go off to join the Navy and embark on this sort of adventure, I guess it was. Was it a specific desire to go to sea? Yeah, it was. I, I, you know, People would ask, you know, why did you join the Navy? And, and I find it very difficult to actually put a finger on exactly what it was, but there was some sort of attraction about the sea. And I think it was more, you know, a 15-year-old's romantic notion about what life at sea might be about rather than the harsh reality that I discovered a few years later. I was going to ask, how accurate was that romantic notion? Yeah, not. <laughs> what was the romantic notion? What did you imagine as a 15-year-old that it was going to be like? You know yourself, David, if you go to the beach and sort of look out over the water and you know see the moon rise or the sun setting over the water or you're there at sunrise, it's quite mesmerising. Yeah. And you know, those sort of aspects are still there. I mean, when you're at sea and, and you see those glorious sunsets or sunrises and you think, gee, you know, wh- why would I be anywhere else? But then there's the rest of the time. What is the reality of being at sea? It's a harsh life. It's, it's hard work. It's, um, you know, I don't want to make it out of slavery, but it is, it is you do work hard. You work long hours, but there's also at times long periods of monotony interspersed with short periods of very high activity that get very exciting. And of course, you know, there's, there's that opportunity to travel to places foreign and, and experience, you know, all of that aspect of, the, of life in the Navy has to offer. Well, there's certainly a pros and a cons list, no doubt. I can't help but think of a number of the cons you know, you say there's long hours, but the downside, again, is that you finish your shift and you're still there on the boat. It's not as if you can magically transport yourself home. You're just there. What did you do? How did you fill your spare time? Well, I would actually argue your, your notion of spare time. Okay. Um, you know, even when you're not on watch, there's, there's work to do. And, and if you're not working, you're sleeping. There really is not a whole lot of spare time as, as you would know it. Right. I'm starting to get a better picture now. The other thing that you've mentioned to me in the past is that you would go to sea for months on end. You've got well and truly grown up children now, but when you were a young man married with a young family, 
you would go off to see and, and not see your kids for, for months on end. That must have been such a difficult period. Yeah, it was. I, I remember very clearly when, when our son was not quite three years old. We were living in Sydney at the time. I was a navigator of a destroyer. And um, we moved house within Sydney and we moved ourselves over a weekend, over the Saturday, Sunday. We, we just relocated house. And on the Monday, I sailed and didn't come home for five months. I'd been away for uh, two or three months and, and my wife told me that later on that my son had turned to her and said, Mummy, I want to move back to the old house. And when she asked why was that, he said, um, I want to see Daddy. Oh, oh, that's heartbreaking. Was it heartbreaking the whole time or was it just difficult to leave and then once you got out to sea and you were in that new environment, that different environment from home, you felt kind of detached from the things that you were missing at home or was it constantly painful to be separated from your family? Look, I don't know that I'd describe it as being painful, but you also need to remember that most of my seagoing career was, you know, prior to the days of email connectivity Mm. and and all of that. But it was also the catch-22 that whenever you were at sea, you couldn't wait to get home again, but when you were home, you couldn't sort of wait for the next deployment and all all the excitement that might have to offer. Because I guess that is what your profession was. So you can, we can, I can imagine from an outsider's point of view that it was difficult to be at sea, forgetting that you were a, you were a navy officer, you were a navy man. That was what you did. Yeah, that's true. And there was a, another period of time that I remember that I'd been posted to a ship at short notice um, that was supposed to be a, a temporary posting for just a few months. Again, we were living in Sydney at the time, and and uh, the ship itself was based out of Western Australia. I joined the ship in, in Newcastle while it was having a refit, sailed the ship back to Western Australia. We were due to deploy for three months and then I was due to leave the ship after that. The day before we deployed, something happened and uh, life changed and I ended up staying in that ship for a full two-year-plus posting. But because it had a lot of time programmed at sea, uh, my wife and I decided that we would leave you know, her and the family uh, in Sydney and so for the next two years, between when my son was between the ages of six and eight, I got home twice a year for a couple of time, a couple of weeks uh, at a time. So it was a pretty sort of tough period family-wise, but not quite as tough as the first six months after I came home, as my wife will no doubt tell you that um, she said to me sometime later, she said it wasn't the time you were away that was the problem. It was the first six months after you came home. And oh, by the way, if that ever happens again, we're coming with you. (laughs) (laughs) So you were so accustomed to being on the ship that you were a different person by the time you got home. It was more a case of I'd come home and upset all of her routines and undermine her authority and just sort of bring the dirty washing home. Are you used to you not being there? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, of course, you started in the Navy when you were 15 and uh, retired 36 years later after some stint out of the Navy, so uh, a long time of your life spent there. What was the rank that you entered the Navy as, as a 15-year-old? I entered as a cadet midshipman. It's a rank that we no longer have. Right. Um, we, we phased out that method of entry in 1980. And you left as? Commander. Commander. So there's a lot of badges in between those two positions, no doubt. There's a few. (laughs) I bet there is. All right. And I'm also guessing that when you went into the Navy as a 15-year-old, you didn't have this well-developed passion for leadership like you do now. Tell us about your journey towards that 
and the way that the Navy exposed you to, to all the concepts that you eventually fell in love with and, and now make your profession? Yeah, look, that's an interesting one to answer as well, because looking back, I don't know that we received a whole lot of training in, in leadership per se. In those days, a lot of it was, was learned on the job. We, we'd spent a lot of time around management type of issues, but not so much around leadership. For me, the whole fascination with the subject of, of leadership came when I was in my late 30s and I'd been posted to what was then the headquarters of Naval Training Command, which was down in Victoria, down on the lovely Mornington Peninsula. And this was in 1997. We had just completed a major review of, of um, the Defence Force. It was called the Defence Efficiency Review, which led into what became known as the Defence Reform Program. As part of that program, the Naval Training Command headquarters was restructured and I was invited to head up a, a new area called the Strategic Development Division. Part of my remit for that was strategic planning for the whole of Naval Training Command, which was about 2,000 people in various places around Australia. And so for the first time in, in my life, I had to really get my head around what strategic planning was really all about, other than the glossy magazine that sat on the coffee table that no one read. That led me down the path of thinking about, well, so how do we measure this stuff? That led me and my team down the path of investigating the balanced scorecard, which in those days was still pretty new, and we did some pioneering work around balanced scorecard. Of course, the balanced scorecard takes you down the path of, well, you better sort of look at all the people side of this. And that led me down the path of the subject of organisational culture. As part of that, we actually ran an organisational culture survey across the Naval Training Command. And um, when it came to debriefing that culture survey, the consultants that we'd used at the time said to me, look, you know, um, this is quite a large organisation, it's a large project and, and you have a deep contextual knowledge of the organisation. We'd really like you to help us, you know, with the debriefs and in order to do that, we'd like you to become accredited in this instrument. And part of that accreditation process involved doing some personal 360 degree feedback and that was my come to Jesus moment. The 360 degree feedback. Yeah, yeah, because i got to tell you, it was pretty confronting at the time. What sort of feedback did you get? Confronting. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Give us an example of what was so confronting. Uh, so it was, it was very, uh, I guess, a dominating and aggressive style of leadership. The interesting thing was, uh, you know, and I say to anyone who, who undergoes some 360 degree feedback, if you want to validate what that feedback from other people says, take it home and share it with your spouse or significant other, which is exactly what I did. Um, we'd been married about 15 years or so at the time and I, and I took this report home. I was, I was really struggling with it. And I explained it to my wife and gave it to her to read and she read through it and then flicked it back across the table at me and said, that's you to a T, what's your problem, dickhead? <laughs> <laughs> and did you say to her, how come you haven't told me about this in 15 years of marriage? <laughs> uh, look, I've heard other people say that they've you know, taken a similar approach with their spouse and their spouses say, what'd you spend so much money on that for? I could have told you that for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so spouses are a really great validation of the way we actually behave with other people. The 360 degree feedback. Wow. And you know, as you talk there, you started by saying that you didn't get a lot of training per se, specifically in leadership in the early days, you, you added. 
That actually runs a bit counter to my purely anecdotal observations with ex-Defence Force people who I know in the public sector. They seem to be very well tooled on leadership, training and development theory and practice. I had the impression that leadership development was something that the the Navy or the Defence Force in general did quite well. So early in your day, it wasn't that way. When did the Navy start to get hold of it as a concept and, and mature it? I think Navy started paying a lot more attention to sort of the theory around around leadership and or different theories around leadership and in, including that in in junior officers training and, and sailors training. Some years after my sort of generation had worked its way through, I would have trouble putting a finger on the exact you know dates or times around that. But it was even then it was confined to we would do some stuff with people at fairly junior ranks and then they wouldn't see it again for 20 years. Right. So in the time, you know, I'm actually going to take a bit of a step backwards here and I I want to come to that leadership training very soon, but in the time that you were in the Navy, we just described the change in their approach to leadership, but geez, just in general, over that 36-year period from a 15-year-old to when you retired, you must have seen an enormous cultural shift during that time across the Navy. Is that fair to say, or am I making unfair assumptions? I think that the Navy of today is a very, very different place to the Navy that I joined what, 40 what, years ago. <laughs> and you saw the evolution of that, but what, what are the extremes? Compare the extremes the day you walked in as a 15-year-old to what it is as you know it today. How, how different are they? It's chalk and cheese. It was... I mean, it's still a tough environment, but those days it was a very, very harsh environment as well. And unfairly was, harsh? Well, I don't know that I necessarily say unfairly harsh, although there's been plenty of you know, other reports to suggest that it was mm. and um, you know, reports of abuse and the like, and I don't shy away from acknowledging those. What I would say is what I experienced was a harsh environment. It was uh, certainly male-dominated. It was only in the early 1980s that females became part of the Royal Australian Navy. They, they you know, were previously the women's uh, Royal Australian Navy. It's incredible. Only in the 80s. In fact, some of my colleagues and, and close friends were among the first females ever to go to sea. So the majority of my seagoing career was, was in ships that, that didn't have females, whereas today it's, it's commonplace. It's just the way we are. I mean, we've evolved, I think, with society as well, although some would say not as quickly as we should have. So a very harsh environment when you first joined. Fast forward to today, how would you characterise it now? I think we're a lot more caring organisation. I think there's a lot more recognition of the need to look after people and look after their well-being. We'd been previously, I think, more of a paternalistic organisation, but I think today there's recognition of the diversity of our workforce and the need to actually be flexible and, and meet their needs. Are there any in the Navy who long for those bygone eras where you describe it as harsh, but others might describe it as just good, tough stuff, discipline, perhaps? The good old days weren't so good. Yeah. And people that, that yearn for them, I refer to them as the dinosaurs. Yeah. So they do exist, but they're the dinosaurs. There's far fewer of them. They're, they're a dying breed. Yeah. And what do they miss? specifically about that? I think what they miss is a myth. Yeah, right. A hazy memory that they look through rose-coloured glasses. Yeah, exactly. So tough 
to try and change the culture, but it obviously didn't happen overnight. And you had a very direct role in one very large cultural shift in the Navy. In 2009, you became part of a major leadership program rollout where you were asked to help design it and then roll it out en masse. It was to tackle some cultural change, some cultural issues. Talk us through that. Perhaps start by telling us what were the cultural issues that was going on in the Navy that were trying to be addressed and how did you go about addressing them? So just a bit more background for that, David, was that at that stage I had been out of Navy for four years. I had left at the end of 2004, so I'd achieved my own personal goals around joining the Navy, which was you know command of a ship at sea. I'd done that. I'd come back ashore. I'd been working in the headquarters of, of Navy office in Canberra. And I was kind of looking around thinking, what's next? And, and I had developed this real fascination around leadership and organisational culture and the links between the two of those and performance. And, and that's why I had left to sort of pursue that passion. And I was actually sitting in a coal mine in central Queensland contemplating the wisdom of some of those decisions. What kind of work were you doing in a coal mine? The same sort of stuff, actually, yeah. around organisational culture and, and leadership development. And I've got to tell you, for for all its many faults, Navy has nothing on a bunch of coal miners. In what way? Much rougher bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've spent my fair share of time on coal mines and they have rich experience, let's say that. <laughs> I got wind that the Navy was looking to establish a cultural change program and you know, long story short, I, I contacted the, the guy who was setting this up, who, who happened to be, you know, um, a former colleague of, of mine and said, look, you know, I'd really be interested in, in coming on board to help out with this, but I'd like to do it from the inside, not the outside. And he essentially said to me, you know, how soon can you start? So I came back in initially as a reservist to help with that. But the, the genesis of that program, which is known as the New Generation Navy Program, it was really the brainchild of the then Chief of Navy, Admiral Russ Crane. And when he looked into his crystal ball in sort of mid to late 2008, what he saw ahead of him was a complete generational change in terms of platforms and capabilities. We were looking at acquiring new capabilities with technology that we hadn't seen before and some very large ships as well. I mean, the, the LHDs or the helicopter landing ships that we have entering service now, the air warfare destroyer that, that's about to come into service, a new type of submarine that, that is you know, not that far away as well. All of these things, brand new, new technologies to go with them. At a time when our recruitment rates were down, our separation rates were up, so we were actually losing the overall size of our workforce at a time where we really needed to be growing it. We had bottlenecks in the training pipeline and we were really suffering from a decade of a very high operational tempo. So we'd been involved for the last 10 years in lots of counter-piracy, humanitarian aid and border protection operations. And the can-do-at-any-cost attitude that was prevailing meant that both the platforms and the people had really been driven exceptionally hard, which was actually making it harder for us to actually retain people. Yeah, yeah um, I bet. But it also led sadly, to the degradation of, of some of our safety standards, and that had implications for both airworthiness and seaworthiness, some very notable incidents occurring. And on top of that, Navy in particular, but defence in general, was suffering from some reputational issues in the press. 
So Admiral Crane sort of looked at it and he, and he said, this is actually causing us to have a loss of the trust and confidence that is traditionally placed in, in this organisation by government and by the Australian people. And we can't continue doing what we're doing. What we need is a fundamental shift in our organisational culture. So when I got into this program and I looked at what they were trying to do and I thought to myself with a background of knowledge around organisational culture and cultural change that I thought Navy's actually trying to go about cultural change in what I would consider to be the right way for the first time in my 30-odd years experience and I was excited by that and I really wanted to be a part of it. And in particular, I wanted to sort of get involved and help shape the agenda. So you were excited by that. You had, as you said earlier, deep Navy knowledge. And to hear someone talk in such a sophisticated manner about the way they wanted to address that raft of issues that you described, it's sophisticated, it's smart and mature for him to want to address those issues through a cultural change program. And you were excited by that. And as you say, wanted to be part of it. How did it begin to take shape when you were beginning the process of putting together this program? What kind of principles were you, you were working on? You've got a very clear goal. The, the reasons for the change are very clear as you've just outlined them. And as you mentioned, one of the, the most public ones was the, you know, a, a number of quite negative events that were being highlighted in the media not long after you started this process. Given all of that, whether you call it urgency or just a deep need for change, how did you go about putting together a program like this? So I want to be clear that it wasn't me that put the program together overall. There was actually an NGN program team established. I was a part of that team, but it had some very clear cultural intent around it. And put succinctly, it was about being able to prove that, that we could be trusted to defend Australia and its interests. In other words, to be able to meet our and Navy's mission, which is to fight and win at sea. We needed to actually be able to prove ourselves capable of delivering on a contract to government to provide both seaworthy and mission-ready forces. And we needed to actually show that we could be a diverse Navy that, that was respectful of each other and where we actually lived our, our own signature behaviours every day. And that was the framework against which we developed things. That's powerful. And, and it, I mean, it's beautifully put. And powerful, though, there a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of those few men and women who were part of the team that put together this program. Yeah, it was, and but it wasn't just those people. And one of one of the key things around the way this program was done was it was done with a lot of communication and a lot of consultation with Navy people more broadly, so that the change wasn't just something being done to them; they were actually a part of it. And that was a key part of, of success, I think, for the program overall. With those sort of goals in mind, the strategy that was set up was based around three pillars. The first of those was, a, was around structure, which was all around streamlining accountability so that we focused on force generation and, and training of our, of our people and forces. But structure is where most organisational change programs start, finish and fail. And what excited me about Navy's approach to this was that the structure was, yes, it was an important part of it, but it was only one part. More importantly, the focus was on a second pillar that was referred to as culture, which was really about looking at the systems and processes that we have in place to support Navy's people, both during and beyond 
their service. And the third pillar, which is the one that, that I particularly became involved in, was around leadership and ethics. And that was all aimed at developing Navy leaders with integrity, moral courage and loyalty. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. I love what you said about structure is where most change programs start, finish and fail. And you as an organization had obviously learned some lessons previously to, to know that that's, you know, you needed to, to not just do this as a cultural kind of program to, to address the cultural issues that existed. It was a real change program as well, if it was ever going to stick. And what were the early signs like when you began to engage with, with the Navy and you started to collaborate with the people to whom it would be done to? So it wasn't a surprise. They were part of the change. Was it well received? Was it as if as an organization they were waiting for something to change? They knew that this needed to come? There was a huge appetite for change. Naturally, there was some resistance to change as, as is perfectly normal in any organizational change. Mm. But what we found was the further down the hierarchy we went, the greater the thirst for change, the greater really? the appetite. Yeah, right. yeah. Interesting. So tell us about the leadership program itself. What are the nuts and bolts? Obviously, we're, we, we don't want to, uh, to go through it like a, with a fine-tooth comb, but I am really keen to understand what were the principles that this rested on? What did you as a group, as a design team, decide were the things that were really going to help this program stand up and see the type of change, a sustained change, that the Navy was demanding of you? Well, David, this is where I really did want to influence and shape the agenda. And really it was, you know, I talked earlier about my come to Jesus moment, which was through the 360 degree feedback. And, well, and your wife's feedback as well, man. <laughs> and for me, that was really an important part of it. But what we wanted to do was to fundamentally challenge people's existing thinking about leadership. You know, there's a lot of different notions about military leadership held by people both outside of the organisation and also within the organisation. And in my personal view, both of those views are coloured far too much by Hollywood. Yeah, right. <laughs> you mean those movies aren't accurate? <laughs> we wanted to take a much more philosophical and conceptual approach to leadership rather than a, a strict competency-based one. So we really wanted to focus on the why. I really wanted to encourage people to reflect on their own leadership styles, to help them to make decisions about their own behaviours and those of their team. And I really wanted to be able to provide a language to help people to discuss thinking and behaviour. And for me, that was through, through the vehicle of the human synergistic circumplex. And of course, tied to that was the 360 degree feedback instrument. How do you go about helping a group of learners, professional people, but learners understand a philosophical and, and conceptual basis for the change that you're asking them to make. How do you begin that? What's at the, the root of that? Yeah, it's got to be about dialogue. When you think about training, particularly in a large organisation, and any large organisation will be the same, training is delivered by the sheep dip method and quite often through death by PowerPoint. So we are actually said that if we're actually going to get people to sit up and pay attention to this, it's got to be different. It, it can't be 
training. It's got to be facilitated learning. What's the difference? Tell us about the difference between training and facilitated learning. Well, David, as you well know, the theory of adult learning is that adults like to learn through experience and that they will tolerate the conclusions of others, but they will only actually act upon conclusions that they reach for themselves. So we wanted to actually help people to explore this subject and to reach their own conclusions rather than telling them the one best way. And so we set up a bunch of three-day workshops. We wanted to immerse them in the subject away from the workplace for three days at a time. Central to that was their 360-degree feedback, which for most of these people, they had never experienced any form of 360-degree feedback so before. It was a really powerful experience for them. For most people in Navy, they didn't actually ever receive 360-degree feedback generally until they reached the, the dizzy heights of Commodore. And I remember one of my sort of key selling points to this to, was to go to the Commodore who was running the, this NGN program. And I said to him, do you remember when you got promoted to Commodore and you, you did a leadership program and you got some 360-degree feedback? He said, yes, I do. I said, did you find that 360-degree feedback useful? Oh, yes, he said. It was really good, really powerful. I said, great. Do you think you would have found it useful 10 years previously? (laughs) That's kind of when the penny dropped for him. Why do we wait until people in such a senior position to do that for them? Exactly. To give them that gift of feedback. You know, during my podcast, that the idea of genuine, authentic feedback when it matters for people, for people you're leading, has come up so many millions of times in our conversations But it's the thing in organizations that you continue, I continue to observe, just doesn't exist. And we know that leaders get busy. They get stuck with their own work to do and and relationships take a back seat. But for us to be so aware of the power of high quality, timely feedback and use it so rarely, it's one of those organizational crimes, isn't it? Absolutely, David. And for an organization like Navy, which can be viewed as being quite staid at times, to introduce something like this was quite radical for a lot of people. A lot of people had trouble getting their heads around it. And some of those dinosaurs we talked about earlier. You um, have had some interesting people sitting in your your, uh, programs, eh? We did indeed. And in fact, we used to invite the dissenters to make themselves known when, because these workshops became compulsory, they didn't have any choice about being there. So we would actually, in the early days, we would actually open the facilitation by asking them to form a sort of a spectrum line in order of the degree of their scepticism about the process really? and just, just to surface it yeah. and get it out there. Yeah. But I've got to tell you that three days later, those people, if they didn't leave that program as card-carrying converts, at worst they were ambivalent. They were no longer active dissenters. But the 360 feedback was only a part of that program and the workshop. We, we also really explored both individual and group behaviour. We really explored the links between leadership, culture and performance. And we really sort of tried to push the message of of the responsibility of leaders to both set and or change the culture at a local level. Rather than saying it's the organisation, it's something being done to us, but to actually acknowledge that we are part of the culture and and the message that, that I pushed time and time again through these workshops was, if as a leader, you are not shaping the culture, and I mean actively shaping the culture, then the culture is shaping you. 
Jeez, I like that. If you're not actively shaping the culture, the culture is shaping you. That's, that's lovely. Got to write that down. We followed up those workshops with the opportunity for anyone who attended those workshops to actually have some ongoing executive coaching as well. The challenge for us was the volume as well. I bet. Um, you had, so, what, were, what were the numbers you had to run through the program? So our target audience, which was mid-level to senior level leaders, amounted to 3,000 people. And I said that we could actually put them through that program in three years. That was through the full three-day workshop program with the full 360. We put an additional 4,000 people through shorter versions of a workshop through their initial entry and, and crew progression sort of training. But we also said that this is not a do it once and, and forget about it. We actually want people to come back for a second iteration and a third iteration. And so that was the basic concept of this cyclical program that we would get people to come back every three years. They would do another workshop with different content, but still with 360 degree feedback at its core. So people could actually see how they were developing over time. So we rolled out the second iteration of our, of our workshop program in 2013. And the third iteration has just a couple of months ago been begun to be rolled out. So they keep on learning from the way they roll it out and the feedback they get and the results that they see, and they feed back those learnings to new iterations. And as you say, you, you're up to iteration three. Tell us about some of the magic moments you had as someone involved in the program where you knew what you were doing was making a difference for the Navy. Yeah, I mean, it's always a joy as a facilitator of one of these programs when people tell you afterwards that this has actually been a life-changing experience for them. Well, life change doesn't get any bigger than that, no. this feedback. I've had people have, have said, this has actually saved my career. I was on the way out. Um, this has made me change my mind. Others have said, this is exactly how we will actually create cultural change within Navy, you know, keep going. You know, one, one even came up to us afterwards and said, this has actually saved my marriage. Yeah. So, yeah, life changing is not an understatement. What's one of the many brilliant things about the type of work that you and I both do? You know that when you're in an organization, a workplace setting, and you're helping people to understand more about the way they act and the way they behave and their tendencies and, and their style and, the, and help them to observe that in the people around you, you know that it's not just at work that they get those benefits. You know that if you're able to help someone at work, that you're also helping them be a better friend or a better husband or a better wife or a better father or mother. It's one of the magical things about what we do. And it sounds like you've had some awesome moments there. And what about observations? So that's great feedback. Tell us about some of the, the observations or feedback about observations that you got through the organization that helped you understand that you knew this program was having an impact on the Navy's culture. Yeah, certainly. Well, if we look at the success of, of the programs, in 2013, when we relaunched the NGN strategy, Remembering that when it was initially launched in 2009, the, the then Chief of Navy said, look, cultural change takes time. In my view, it will take at least five years. So he was talking about a 2014 horizon at the time. In 2013, one of the realisations that we'd made was 2014 was ambitious, <laughs> that it was going to take a, a lot longer. And, and so we relaunched the strategy with a, you know, with a further extended horizon, and it's been refreshed since as well. But in 2013, when we were relaunching that strategy, at the same time, a defence-wide cultural change program was being implemented, and that had been driven ultimately by the ADFA Skype incident. 
which... I remember it well. Got a lot yeah, of media. And it led to a number of investigations, a number of inquiries. I think there was something like 11 different inquiries that resulted in this overarching program that was known as Pathway to Change was for the whole of defence. But Navy actually argued very successfully, listen, guys, we've been on this program, on this journey now for four years. We believe we are kicking some goals with this and NGN will be Navy's answer, Navy's vehicle for actually implementing Pathway to Change. And the rest of the defence organisation bought into that. And in fact, you know, some of the other parts of the defence were looking at us quite enviously about how we were tracking. We also had looked at some of the defence-wide attitude survey data, and we were seeing changes in responses there for Navy that were not being seen across other parts of defence, which told us we were doing something right. And of course, you know, uh, making a direct causal link between what we were doing and those results is very, very difficult, but you know intuitively that you're doing something right there. Again, in 2015, we had another reform program pushed over the top of us called One Defence, which came out of the review of the Defence Material Organisation, but drove high-level, strategic-level change program across the whole of the Defence Organisation. And again, Navy argued successfully to maintain the NGN program as part of its, its response to that. But then we can look at some specific metrics as well. We had been measuring the organisational culture across that time period as well. In fact, we had three consecutive... How do you measure time- culture? Yeah. So, so we used, a, again, the, the human synergistics product, the organisational culture inventory, coupled with the organisational effectiveness inventory, which uses the same circumplex. It speaks the same languages as that which we were using in our leadership program. So it's very easy for people to actually understand the links between the two by, by doing so. But when we measure the culture with that instrument, and we were measuring around about 20% of, of the organisation's overall population, we were actually measuring culture from around about two and a half to 3,000 people at a time. And what we were seeing in three consecutive periods of, of measurement we saw an improvement in all 12 of the behavioural styles measured by that instrument, all 12, and an average percentile shift of 11 percentile points across that period of time. So the feedback was resounding. So that feedback, I mean, when you talk to people outside of Navy, the people who really understand this sort of stuff, and and you say you've had that sort of change over that period of time in that large an organisation, talking about an organisation of 14,000 people overall, to see that sort of a shift in that sort of a time, means, you know, something's going really right for you. And it, it also means it's a sustainable rate of change. It's not, a, it's not one of those very sort of short-term turn-ups that the quickly... Like a sugar hit. Yeah. And that was my next question. How do you ensure that this is a long-term sustainable change? And, you, you know, you've partly answered that, but in your thinking in designing the program with your team, you're very humbly certain to point out before you didn't do it alone, and as you rolled it out over periods of years, what were the conversations you know, amongst the team, those who were intimate with the program, to ensure that this was never going to be a sugar hit, it was going to be long-term, genuine cultural change? Because we've all been part of great days, you know, workshops or you know, that are brilliantly facilitated with great information. We think, Jesus is interesting. And then five days later, busy, busy back at work, we've forgotten all about it. I always knew that at some point someone was going to say to me, you know, Grant, show me the money. Prove to me that this very large leadership program that, that you've been running is actually worth the large amount of money that's been invested 
in it. That was in the back of my mind from day one. And I knew we had to do something to address that, that notion of return on investment. I knew that I had to somehow find a way to actually establish some internal research around that. And I knew I had to kind of figure out what was the exam question as well. I was fortunate to find within our Navy team someone who was a very, very clever researcher, had a PhD and the brain the size of a planet and was all equally passionate about this sort of stuff. And she has now done two tranches of research for us and is is currently embroiled in, in her third. The first of those was all around return on investment for that leadership program because I wanted to be able to go back to Chief of Navy and say, here is the proof that what you're investing in this is paying dividends for you. And so she, over a 12-month period, did a combination of quantitative and qualitative study that looked at both the test-retest data from the 360-degree feedback She actually examined over a million data points. She followed this up with some uh, structured interviews to pick out themes and the like. What she managed to show was that even at the most basic level that you could possibly get to for return on investment, which is very, very difficult to to show, particularly in an organisation that, you know, doesn't sell widgets, what she could show was the return on investment was at least sevenfold. But it was probably a whole lot more than that. Yeah. And that, did that keep the, the big brass happy, the top brass? <laughs> that, that certainly helped our course and yeah. helped con- ensure the funding stream continued. But it also helped us to launch into the second round of research, which was about what is the impact that executive coaching is having on not just on leaders as individuals, but on the organisation as a whole. That bit of research took a, a little bit longer, but again, was actually able to show a very strong and positive impact both on the individuals and on the organisation overall and the impact that it was having upon their leadership styles, which plays into how that shapes the culture, which plays into the performance levels that you get. We also, I say we, I, I should really give you know, due credit to where it's due, and that is, that is our, our researcher there, a wonderful lady by the name of Roz Astfeld, to give her a plug, had this crazy idea that we could actually use some of our organisational culture data that we'd been collecting over the years to help develop a predictive factor model that would actually help to raise a flag to say a particular unit or a particular part of the organisation might be standing into danger in terms of its organisational culture. And I got very, very excited by that and um, we put that up to through the Chief of Navy to for approval to actually have that research established and and that's well underway now. But in terms of, you know, other data points, when we sort of looked in about 2014, in about 2014, when when we looked for other sources of data to verify where the overall NGN program was going and succeeding, not only did we have the all culture data show us, we also had the anecdotal data given from the way individual units would interact with us when we were collecting organisational culture. In the early days, when I used to ring up a ship's captain and say, hey, listen, pal, we're coming down to your ship to actually survey the organisational culture there, we were treated with deep suspicion. Why are you coming to my ship? What are you going to do with the data? It's all about that. When we went to debrief the, the units later on, I'd always be met with the same three things. First of all, the data's wrong. Secondly, even if the data's right, there's a reason that it shows up like it does in the survey. And thirdly, oh, it's all fixed since you actually did the survey. 
So that's what I would invariably get from the command team and then I'd go and, and talk to the people on the lower deck and they'd say, well, that's exactly what it's like here. And in fact, if anything, it's worse now than when you did the survey. <laughs> so that was in the early days. We saw over time the whole attitude to that change as people, particularly ship's captains, realised that what we were giving them was a gift, a gift of data and something that they could work with at a local level to the point now where we're now in our fourth iteration of data collection where the team actually has ship's captains ringing up saying, when can you come and measure the culture here in my ship? And when we debrief, we're actually setting them up now with an organisational culture coach who can actually help them actually work with the data with their own teams. So there's this been a real embracing of this notion of measurement. That's a, a fantastic turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Independent of all of that, if we look at things like uh, recruitment and separation rates, we've seen improvements in both of those. The training pipeline has been improved significantly. If we look at um, statistics around alcohol and substance abuse, what we find is that while the testing rates have gone up, the actual positive results have gone down. If we look at rates of unacceptable behaviour, we've seen significant drops in those. And you've got to acknowledge that no amount of unacceptable behaviour is acceptable, but it's really encouraging to see such a a large reduction as we've seen in that. And we've been recognised externally as well. In 2012, the International Coach Federation um, recognised the work we'd been doing in the coaching program with an honourable mention in, in the International PRISM Award. And the Australian Human Resources Institute, through their awards program, recognised us as finalists in both 2012 and 2015. So there's kind of recognition all around that that what we've done actually has made a difference and and it's something that I'm really proud to have been a part of. I bet you are. It's a fantastic story of cultural revitalisation and a sophisticated approach to to a change program and and a leadership program. I love the way you talked about not sheep dipping, but getting, getting the people who you were working with to truly understand it at a philosophical and contextual level and, and their own styles and, and developing that all important language through the organizations that there was a shared language that allowed people to say so much, so much meaningful content in few words, the, the type of language that people shared, as I say. And what a great learning experience for you, of course, because you have since that program and your involvement in it left the Navy and you have your own private consulting firm. What kind of incredible lessons did you take with you to the work that you do now? Yes, I can sort of break those lessons into two areas, one around cultural change in general and and some around leadership specifically. So if we start by looking at the things around cultural change, and I've got six points here. Number one, John Cotter was right. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I'm just reading a John Cotter book right now. So if you what look was at he his, right about? If you look at his, his book, The Heart of Change, he talks about an eight-step model for change. And if you look at Navy's progress, you know, from when we started the NGN program in, in 2009, it's followed that model very, very closely and successfully, I think. My second point would be that you need both the carrot and the stick if you're going to have success, you've got to recognise that there will be your early adopters. There will be those who just need a little bit of coaxing to come along on the journey with you. But there are always going to be a certain percentage of people, the ones that I refer to as the dinosaurs, 
who you actually do need to beat over the head with the stick in order to get them to come along or to encourage them actually to get off the bus. Yeah. And you shouldn't shy away from that. The third point is... That's, sorry, that's that's tough, but you're right. I mean, you're right. There's there's the early adopters. There are people who come on board and in any organisation, the, the reality is, and we don't like to talk about it, there, there are some people who just refuse to, to come on board and, and they either need encouragement or they need to leave. Not everyone comes along for the journey, do they? That's absolutely right. And some will think that we'll just wait this one out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, John Cotter talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in, in a lot of organisations, CEOs change over re- fairly regularly. In, in Navy, the, the chief of Navy turns over every three years or so. And every new CEO or every new chief of Navy wants to make their mark on the organisation. And so people think, oh, well, this is just the current just chief's, one. you know, pet project, so we'll wait it out. The thing about Navy's current program is is that it's now survived three separate chiefs of Navy who have you know, all reiterated the message that, that this is here to stay. So get on board or get out of the way. It's a good message. Look, my third point would be about the need to adequately socialise change prior to initiation. And, and I made that point earlier about people understanding that the change is not something being done to them, it's being done with them. They're part of that change process. Fourthly, I can't emphasise enough the need to measure progress because when you are within the system, it can be very difficult to actually notice change. And it's like the proverbial frog in the saucepan with the heat being turned up, that you can just simply not notice it. And so a means of measuring progress is really, really important. Tied very much to that is my fifth point, and that is that success really must be acknowledged, shared, and celebrated. You've got to celebrate the wins at every opportunity. It's it's what reminds people that the change journey, for all its pain, is actually worthwhile. Another one of those that is such a common challenge for for busy organisations, isn't it? Yeah. And my sixth and, and final point around cultural change is that cultural change is an enduring activity. It's not, to use a a Navy or or military parlance, it's not a fire and forget weapon. You've got to keep at it. And I think that's, you know, part of Cotter's message as well. You just don't let up. It's a marathon, not a sprint, hey? Yeah. Yeah, It's a never-ending marathon. Yeah. They are great lessons, Grant. Now, um, so you talked about the fact that you, you learned some lessons about change and you also learned some lessons about leadership. Run us through what those are. So I guess the points I'd really like to sort of make around leadership is that good leadership looks the same in any organisation. Oh, that's interesting. Good leadership in Navy looks the same as good leadership in a bank. It looks the same as a good leadership in a fast-moving consumer goods organisation. It looks the same as in a large retail organisation. looks the same as in a large resources organisation. It's only the context or the mission of the leader that changes. But the behaviours of a good leader, they look the same anywhere. That's a great point. I'd also say that leadership has absolutely nothing to do with rank, power, or organisational hierarchy. At its heart, leadership is all about influence. When we think about leadership, we we quite often think in this very linear way around a a superior-subordinate relationship. But leadership is is about so much more than that. It's about influence, not just in both those directions, but more importantly about influence outwards 
and sideways and actually beyond the confines of the parent organisation. And when, when you can actually influence in that way, then you really are a leader. Which kind of brings me to my next point, which is about influence actually means building and developing relationships, relationships at all levels. And that, that means, you know, building and developing trust. At its heart, you know, leadership is a social construct. You know, it's about relationships and trust. And my last point, which actually links these two notions together around cultural change and leadership, is that leaders at all levels in the organisation, not just the very senior leaders, but leaders at all levels in the organisation have a non-negotiable, and I mean that non-negotiable responsibility for setting or developing the culture of the organisation at their own local level. Absolutely. Grant, there's such fantastic points, mate. I, I love that. And of course, for my listeners that will be on the podcast page for this episode, they're just such great tangible points. You've been on an awesome journey, entered the Navy when you were 15, you rose through the ranks, you eventually sunk your teeth into the, this great discipline of leadership and were part of the team that rolled out a fantastic program. And now you're doing it largely in the private sector as well. It's a, it's a great story, Grant, but hey, you're not off the hook yet, mate. I have three more questions that I'm going to ask you. Are you ready for these? They're quick. Think about everything you achieved in that grand career from 15 until where you are today and tell me the one single thing you're most proud of. I think the thing that I'm most proud of has been the opportunity and ability to actually get involved in Navy's cultural change program and, and to establish that leadership program in a way that's been enduring. It's such a loaded question. Whenever I, I've been asking my guests that for the last five or six episodes, and they always talk about, of course, what we've been talking about for the whole episode because it's front of mind. But I'm, I'm sure that is your proudest moment. It's just I've noticed a bit of a pattern there with the way these questions are answered. All right, how about this one? What's the one thing that you know that you wish everyone in the world knew? It's kind of presumptive to say that they don't know it already. They might very well know it, but if. Uh, you know, if there's this one thing that you think would change the world if everyone knew, a lot of people might know it, but not everyone does. I think I'd ha I would have to say it would be around getting to understand your own thinking and how that actually impacts upon other people and the way they experience you. It's the opportunity to have someone hold up the mirror for you so that everybody could have their own come to Jesus moment. That's a fantastic answer, Grant. I love that. All right. And the very last question, in terms of professional or personal development, what's the one thing that you're working on right now? Me personally? Yeah, you personally. I don't know that I could say that there's one particular thing that I'm trying to develop in myself, but it's about trying to develop my whole self. And that's actually trying very hard to, to live the types of things I'm advising other people around, actually being true to myself continuing to learn, continuing to listen to feedback and continuing to explore with that real beginner's mindset about being open to new things. That is a great answer, Grant. Grant Dale, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks very much, David. And that was Grant Dale. I love talking to Grant both on and off record. 
all about his time at sea. For me, with a young family, it boggles my mind the concept of spending years and months at sea away from family, missing so many of the important moments in the lives of your loved ones. And it was great to hear all about Grant's relationship with leadership, the way his interest was sparked by his experiences, other leaders and tools like the 360 degree feedback survey. And how about that advice? Grant was responsible for designing and delivering a leadership program across the entire organisation. It was a program that the Navy was counting on to change a deep-rooted organisational culture that had slipped too far away from community expectations, a culture that was old-fashioned and autocratic. You can bet your bottom dollar that those pearls of wisdom he shared with us through the chat were hard-earned, to say the least. I will, as always, share the lessons I took from my chat with Grant. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or by emailing me directly, david at teams.guru. We're at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. 